VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. Today we are talking Spurs, Aston Villa, Everton, Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, a contender for Premier League goal of the season, maybe even of the century. Lift off for Luton Town at Kenilworth Road, a new league leader who somehow managed to be going under the radar. I'm Gregor Robertson and joining me to discuss all of that are Tom Allnett, Alison Rudd and Tony Cascarino. First though, we're going to reflect on the sad news that Terry Venables, the former England, Tottenham Hotspur and Barcelona manager, has died at the age of 80 after a lengthy illness. Venables of course led England to the semi-finals of the European Championships in 1996, memorably beating Holland 4-1 at Wembley before England were knocked out on penalties by Germany. He also ended Barcelona's 11-year title drought in 1985, becoming known as El Tel during his time in Spain and won the FA Cup with Tottenham in 1991. Now, there are some, some beautiful tributes in, in today's times from, from Martin Samuel, Henry Winter, and uh, our very own Alison Rudd, um, which I would advise everyone to, to go out and read today. Um, Alison, you, you started your tribute to Terry Venables by saying he, he had a career you couldn't make up. And well, that you should never try to either. I mean, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't create Terry Venables as a as a work of fiction because no one would believe you. So that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. I mean, he was a very important figure in football, and he was England manager. And a lot of people today are saying he was the most inspirational England manager. But but he also released a board game for all the family on how to be a manager. <laughs> he. He, he wrote when he came to the end of his playing career with QPR, he decided he'd write detective novels. I mean, people don't do this anymore, and those detective novels were turned into a TV series. I mean, unbelievable. And he bought. He decided he was a businessman. He liked wheeling and dealing, so he mm-hmm. bought a controlling stake in Portsmouth. When did he do that? While he was manager of the Australia national team. I mean, it's like <laughs> it's like it's like he just couldn't do one thing. He had to be always trying to do other stuff. He failed in trying to set up a West End tailors. He was disqualified from company directorships for seven years. Um, I mean, it's sort of incredible that he did become England manager with all that behind him. And in his autobiography, he openly says he just was shocked himself that he was made England manager because, you know, the the sort of stuffed shirts types at the FA did not like him being this colourful character at all. But Jimmy Armfield really, really rated him and... And did something quite brilliant, really. He went he went out into football, Jimmy Armfield, and he interviewed players and coaches from all over the country, and asked them, "Who do you think should be the manager?" And they all, not all, but most of them said, "Well, surely Terry Venables." And that made it difficult for the FA to say no. It was like they didn't really expect that to be what happened. So he was it was almost a democracy in a way that he was sort of voted in um, to be the England manager. And so, but but all of that is not, it isn't that long ago. But it seems slightly slightly odd that th- these things don't happen anymore. And mm. he just you know he just he just just kept going always. You know he 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 could sing. He had records out in the charts. <laughs> I mean he he was he could do anything. And um, so as 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 whilst most of the tributes are focused on, I think his his coaching methods. He was brave too. You know he went to Barcelona. Um, I mean, Tom will talk about this, but they didn't want him. I mean, English coaches were considered to be really quite rubbish. Why is one taking over at Barcelona? And he said, you know, get rid of Diego Maradona and bring in Steve Archibald. I mean, can you imagine how that would have gone down if it hadn't worked out? But it did work out. And by the end of his tenure there, they loved him. Um, so what a colourful career. 
A real, a real personality then, Tony. Yes. Um, you forgot how the nightclub, his own nightclub as well. Well, there's, I know there's lots, lots <laughs> Which more. he used to sing in, sing in regularly and invite a lot of the boys that he obviously played with and he got to know of from all different industries in different sports. Um, I met Terry a few times through Ted Buxton, who is his right-hand man, who Terry used to say to me, he's, he's still hanging on to signing you. He said, you know, that's all he's got, Ted. You know, used to joke about him. But also Teddy Sheridan played under him and Ted spoke very highly of Terry. Um, he was an incredible character. He was my manager for the day because um, well, I played. For, I, I uh, so let's start again. He was my manager for the day where I um, could play for the Republic of Ireland. I got invited across to play in, uh, in in Dublin for a game, and Terry Venables was the manager, and he had a Tottenham eleven for a John Divine testimonial. And I met Terry at the airport, and but he also brought in some players from other clubs, like Steve Wicks was there, the centre half, the big blonde centre half uh, that played for QPR. And we were sitting in the the airport lounge, um, and I'm just from Gillingham, and, and I'm going over for this testimonial, and Ter- Terry's chatting all, all the way, and Steve Wicks sits, sits next. Steve Wicks sits next to me and he starts to say that Venables is, is looking at him as a player to buy uh, and, and interest in him. And I just kept thinking, well, I'm up against you in the game. And anyway, I played and one of my best games I ever had. And afterwards, uh, Terry Venables uh, didn't go for him, but he also said to me years later, he said, well, you give him such a hard time. He said, I thought can't sign him and you were a third division player. <laughs> <laughs> so he sort of nailed me in his way. But Dream all- shatterer. Too. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. just that. But also Mark Goldberg was my next door neighbour who owned Crystal Palace and he brought in uh, Terry Venables. Yeah. Um, but I'm told, and I asked Mark this because I was told that even for... Uh, you know, a meeting with Terry, it had come at a huge price. And I asked Mark about that one day, Mark Goldberg, and said to him, did you really pay quite an astronomical sum? To He went, well, yeah, I did, but I'm not telling you how much. He was an incredible negotiator. He was so shrewd. And I know he told loads of the lads over, after their careers, if you don't want to do something and you get offered things, just ask for three times much. You know, <laughs> three times more. Ask for three times more. He was that guy, and Alison said he, he was that sort of Dell boy, but a very shrewd man. Loved his football. And you speak to any player that played under him, and if Venables believed in you, you were his man. He absolutely gave you everything, supported you in every way. Tom, you've, you've lived and worked in Spain. Um, as Alison pointed out, when he, he took the Barcelona job, it was almost at a time when England English coaches were considered Luddites. <laughs> um, what, what's the what's the reaction been to, to this news in, in Spain? Yeah, I, mean, I think here in England with someone like Venables, there's, there's always a sort of a, a temptation to draw upon all those stories that we've just talked about there and, and to think of him as kind of a, a man manager and, you know, arm around the shoulder and this kind of thing. And, and obviously all that was there. But I think obviously what we've heard from so many people who worked under him was just how innovative he was and how brave he was, like Alison said. And I think it's interesting from the Spanish angle, they don't, they're not really drawing upon the sort of, you know, Del Boy kind mm. of character. They're drawing upon his tactics and what he brought to La Liga. And, and when he first kind of came to Barcelona, this idea of kind of pressing and, and 4-4-2, it was, it was revolutionary, you know. And you look at the papers today, Mundo Deportivo, you know, Adios El Mista, you know, by boss. You know, there was a, there's a real big sense of feeling there, you know. And I think it's easy now to, to think of Barcelona as the kind of behemoth club that we know they are now. But at the time he went there, you know, they hadn't won the league for 11 years in his first season. They won the league at a canter. They were basically at the top since sort of, you know, day one. And so much of Barcelona's story is kind of seen through them winning their first European Cup in 92 under under Cruyff. And Venables was a penalty shootout away from doing that in 86, you know, against Al Bucharest. And perhaps, you know, if they had won that penalty shootout, his place in, in that history would have been even more pronounced. But... I mean, this a nice piece by Ramon Besser in El País today saying he deserves his place in the in the kind of lineage of Gamper, Cruyff, Guardiola, you know, in, in the kind of um, identity of Barca that we know today, and remembered hugely, hugely fondly over there, absolutely. And what you were at um, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium uh, on Sunday? What was the kind of what was the feeling and the atmosphere like there? Yeah, I mean, Paul Coyte, the um, Spurs announcer, did a very good job, kind of trying to. Uh, give a brief summary of Venables' time at Tottenham and uh, he got through about 15 words before the, the whole stadium was basically standing up and applauding and no one could hear what he was saying. <laughs> um, and there was a huge you know, round of applause, of course. Um, the South Stand kind of broke out into a 
into a chart of old Terry Terry. You know, I mean, he's, I mean, Postacoglu said it very well, I think. You know, he embodies almost everything about Tottenham. You know, brave, attacking football, uh, gung-ho style, um, spontaneity. And, uh, you know, of course, won the FA Cup as manager in 1991. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Spurs had an incredibly fast start in that match. And I think, in part, it was because of the kind of rousing sense of feeling before kickoff for Venables. OK, well, maybe that's the best place to start, Terry Venables' old club. Um, it was a fast start, but it was not the, the end that Tottenham would have <laughs> would have liked and hoped for, and possibly deserved. It could have, you know, this was a thrilling game. It was like a game between two of the teams with the highest defensive line in in uh, the Premier League, and it was always always going to look like it was going to be a cracker. Um, and it turned out that way. I think Spurs could have been 3-0 up in the first five minutes. Yeah, I mean, it could have been 2-1 in five minutes. So, I mean, there's so many goals disallowed for a while. It's, as you said, there's two high lines. It was almost like a kind of a series of balls over the top, players flying through, saves, offside flags going up. It was just, and Villa were playing on the tightest of margins like they do with that high line. And sometimes you could think, oh, you know, they're being, they're, they were lucky with that one. But I think also, you know, sometimes you have to say it's really good defending. You know, they're very, very tight, very well organised. But Tottenham were excellent for the first half an hour. I really thought they were. I thought they played mm. really well in that first 40 minutes, created loads of chances. It was the first game where I thought, well, they could probably do with Harry Kane here. You know, just someone with a little bit more kind of composure, a bit of pause in the box, you know, a little bit frantic perhaps. But they looked like they were going to go on and win the game, you know, comfortably. But, you know, we know what we know Emery's like. He gets them into half-time. He very cleverly took cash off at half-time because he was on a booking, but he also said afterwards he wanted to sort of patch up that right side a bit, brought on Tielemans. And in the second half, I thought Villa were very uh, professional, punchy, ruthless. We saw Watkins finish. I thought it was a really clever finish. And OK, a, res- a fair result might have been 2-2, I think, over the whole reflection of the game. But actually, I thought Villa really showed how, you know, we- we've talked to them before about how their patchy away record. They got thumped by Newcastle and Liverpool already this season. But they answered some questions yesterday, you know, and for people kind of doubting that Villa are going to be up there. Henry tried to claim afterwards there are still seven teams ahead of them in the race for the top four, but... Who's he kidding? It's getting harder and harder <laughs> to sort of buy that outsider act, right, because they're right there, in my opinion. Yeah, they've won seven of the last nine, 22 wins in two, in 2023 as well. It's, it's, he is kidding us. He's kidding us on. He's tr- trying to dampen expectations here, Alison, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, how gratifying it must be if you're him, because... You're saying the right thing, which is I'm not going to... The last thing he needs is for his team to A, start believing their own hype, the hype that's around them, or, or or thinking about the bigger prize. That would that would not be... That would not be productive, I don't think. So he's 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 doing the right thing, but how gratifying for everyone else in the world to say, poof, come on, you, you, you're in the... You're in the conversation. You're definitely in the conversation. I mean, it was the offside derby, and they won the offside derby. <laughs> is how it how it felt to me, and and and, and Tom's spot on. It's about <sighs> Spurs were all about chaos and emotion and going for it, regardless of um, how many injuries they had. Whereas Villa under Emery were more were, were a similar team, but but we'll rein it in and and look at the. F- you know, the finer points of movement and tactics and organisation and taking breaths. And that's that's why they won a thrilling game. They were prepared to sort of just... It's like when you're driving along and you just want to save petrol so you brake a bit more than you normally would. I felt like Villa applied <laughs> the brake occasionally and uh, Spurs did not. And in fact, if you analyse what was available to both managers it should have been the flip of that it should have been Postacoglu saying right because we have 11 players out was it 11 if you include Ten, suspensions I think, yeah. yeah I mean the team sheet was something else there was no recognised centre half no, no, it was a, Royal a, a, and a Ben back Davis four of, of full backs yeah. I mean ridiculous no holding midfielders you know and you keep Hoiberg on the bench. I thought Hoiberg did really well when he came off the bench. It made me think, why didn't he start? But everybody's right in, everybody mm. is right, right on board with this, aren't they, Tom? They're like, you know, as, as gung ho as it seems, it's like there's no, there's no compromise, and it seems that but the Spurs showed, fans but are happy with that. That's my point. Villa showed you can be, as, have an identity and compromise, and not. Mm. And but no that's one, not. No one, no one sat around this table. But no one sat around this table saying, <clears throat> "Oh, Aston Villa were really boring." Oh, no, what a, what no, a no. shame they went all pragmatic. They're not, we're not saying that, are we? We're just saying they just included little elements of it 
to make sure they won what was a frenetic match. But I mean, I mean, Emery, I think we know is a very sort of reactive coach, and that's not, you know, that's not to criticise at all. No. He's a fantastic coach, very clever, but he will adjust his team and make those adjustments. Whereas Postecoglou is a is a Puritan, right? He's an he's an ideologue. He he thinks his way is the only way to play. And when even with ten players, and out. even with ten players out, this is the way to double down. And <laughs> actually, I guess he would say, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess he would say that the previous week against Wolves, you know, they played Die, they played Davis, they played Hoiberg, for example, and they actually played quite on the back foot. Didn't really have much control of the game and I think he looked at that match and thought that's not the way I want to play you know and die back on the bench Hoiberg back on the bench and he and he sort of thinks actually I would take some hits here early on in his in his Tottenham tenure I'll take some hits but we have to build the way we want to play and, and I actually think I take Alisson's points but I do think long term the sort of Postacoglu project is still on track you know this thing is you can see the way they're playing you can see the identity the way they played in that first 40, 40 minutes yesterday was very good they could have won this match and would they have won it if they'd played a different, you know, played Dyer and played back? And I mean, it reminds me a bit of when Pochettino took over. And when Pochettino came in, Spurs had a, a whole host of these kind of players, Kapu and Adebayor. And Pochettino gave them a few games, almost just to sort of prove him right. And then he brings in Ryan Mason. He brings in the sort of young British players. And he thinks, OK, this is my base. And it might not be good enough for now, but actually it's something that I can build on. And I think he thinks that playing a different way is, it might work a little bit here and there, but it's not something he can build on. Maybe... Postacoglu looked at the video of the Nottingham Forest game away from home, where Villa played recently, where the pace of Alanga and Morgan Gibbs-White on either, either flank, and also Wanye down the middle, um, you're taking a huge risk when you, you're Villa and you're up against Brennan Johnson. Because one thing he is, he's lightning quick. So is Son. But he's still, Unai Emery was still prepared. You, you, you mentioned there about compromise. I think that's one of the words of the season because Jurgen Klopp doesn't compromise on Saturday with Trent. Didn't compromise. I'm still staying what I want to do. You know, he's doing it. Pep certainly doesn't compromise. I think there's a number of managers that have this mindset of if we do this the best we can, this is our best way of winning points or getting points on a regular basis. So far, that serves Spurs really well. If we'd have sat here at the start of the season and gone after 13 games, Spurs would have this amount of points without Harry Kane. We'd have gone, well, no, no they're not going to be there. And in fact, they are. And they've lost the last three games. So um, I found it a fascinating game. Um, I, I kept thinking, what's the point of offside anymore? <laughs> As I'm well, watching it, because it's, you know, they're, they're literally on the line. I'm thinking, are they going to move the line soon? Because this is getting so high, they're literally going to be trying offside even in the opposition's half. You know, it, it made me laugh as I'm watching it. Um, and it was an intriguing game. One thing that struck me is that managers, the sort of evolution of management now is that it's in-game. It's time when you make decisions. The half-time has Tom alluded to, you know, decision making of Matty Cash changing it around, getting Tillemans on on into the team. Villa looked completely different. John McGinn, I hardly and John McGinn's been terrific this season. But his first, if you look at his two performances, his first half and second half, John McGinn was terrific in the second half. And yes, the game was quite open, but the game's going to be open the way Spurs play anyway. And Villa, I thought it was it was one of them games. I was kept thinking the level of management now in the Premier League yeah. we talk about players that are being invested in but the managers you know they've all had top careers in, and a, a part of me kept thinking do you know what is there going to be redemption at the end of the season for Unai Emery will they finish above Arsenal you know which again we would have never thought about that at the start of the season but it's a little part of me thinks that do you know what Villa could end up above Arsenal by the end of the season now, I'd still say Arsenal would be the favourites for that, but compared to where Villa were, and look, Villa is a club I played for. So I, you know, I've always got a lot of sentiment, a little bit of bias towards that club because they've always, for me, been the biggest club in the Midlands and they deserve a big team. And I think Unai Emery is developing a big team here. It's not outlandish. They're two points behind Arsenal. Now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't quite say outlandish, but you, you know what I mean. Uh, you know, yeah. we're a third of the way through the season now. 13 games is a third of the way through. So it's... Um, it's Villa are it, very much part of that. 
that kind of shake up for the Champions League spots now. Absolutely, I think that's what we can yeah. we can see after. The th- I mean, the one that of course is that Tottenham are not the same Tottenham they were a few weeks ago. I, mean, no. I, I know no. we are all talking about a statement win, and I said the same thing in my report. But equally, this is a great time to play Spurs, isn't it? I mean, you know, playing Emerson Royal and Ben Davis at centre half. They haven't got Madison Van der Ven, You know, no Romero, no Basuma yesterday. I mean, they lost Bentancur after half an hour. They are really on their last legs, you know. So, I yes. do think Tom slightly and. I don't think it's not really that important their defenders because <laughs> their style, as we saw, could have put them three 0 up. And yes, I mean it's a bit of a daft one to say they're not as important, but their style isn't really about their defenders being men, man of the match or being the, the performers that change the outcome of a game. It's all about how well their forwards can do and deliver. For me, of where Tottenham will end up. But why do we, why do we think he dropped? He dropped Dyer, didn't he? Because he decided he'd rather have pace at the back than someone who knew what to do. Yeah. Mm. And that, I, th- I think that sums up Postacoglu. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Let's move on. We'll move on to Goodison Park, where um, there was a kind of seething atmosphere beforehand. You know, um, pink cards held up with um, corrupt under underneath the, the Premier League logo after following Everton's. 10-point deduction for, for breaching uh, spending rules uh, last week. Um, there were boos in the 10th minute. A lot of hostility. Um, and that was punctured immediately by an absolute wonder goal by Alejandro uh, Garnacho. Tony, <laughs> ever score a goal like that? Have <laughs> <laughs> you? Absolutely not. <laughs> in training? <laughs> no chance. No, I've never done it even training either. No, couldn't no. do it. You know, agility to... Get the leverage and get yourself up in the air, and then to hit it like he did. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, Sean Dyche must have been pulling his hair out, thinking that is the last thing that it's we true. need. There, that there was worldy goal. There was this feeling. There was yeah. real kind of sentiment in the in the ground that you know, sense of injustice. Yeah. Um, and someone that was the worst thing it. that could possibly happen to Everton, Alison, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, not in the script at all. Talking about you shouldn't make up a character like Terry Venables because no one believed he was real. You, this this afternoon was supposed to be all about how Everton and the team harnessed the atmosphere in the ground and the sense of injustice and the whole narrative of and that's and that is actually what what Sean Dyche said was you know he's he started he's starting to talk like he's a scouser he's starting to talk about we you know <laughs> we have a certain way of doing things here and this club will not be cowed by the injustice and we will show it on the pitch and we have to work harder to make sure that no matter what the outcome is when we've had the appeal that we have given everything to make sure we don't go down it was all set up for a rip-roaring match where the players found an extra two percent of adrenaline and pace and power and endeavor because the crowd would be roaring them on that that you know the book was not written with a wonder goal from the opposition in the, the opening few minutes. That was not it at all. I'm not entirely convinced that's the only reason that um, Everton didn't play as we expected. I half suspect there was a fear beforehand amongst the coaching staff that if the players respond too much to what's going on externally, that you get a game which is... Um, too fast, too furious, and you get sendings off. You get you get people out of control. Like in the most heated derbies, suddenly they're ruined because two players are sent off and everyone's just gone a bit bonkers. I wonder if they were told, ease into it. Don't 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 let the the injustice and in, and so on get. Remember that you're playing football. Remember the tactics. Just sort of ease yourself into the game. And they weren't a- ever able truly to connect with any sense of this is a a statement game where we're showing that we are resilient in the face of what's happened with the points deduction. Having said that, they had 20, I thought they 20, played well. They, had 24 they didn't play badly. They didn't nine. play badly, but they didn't play. They didn't play with anything. No, they, it other wasn't than expected atmosphere and sort of They, they were different. No, yeah. it wasn't a fury. No. United kept giving them the sucker punch. You know, they've got a wonder goal and then they get a penalty. And, you know, they just, every moment you felt it was getting close to Everton equalising, Man United punished them. Because yeah. it was never a 3 0, was it? You know, if you look at that no. game, it was never that type of match. No. Right, the goal. Come on, where does this goal rank? Because it was an absolute world day. And we've all been asked, haven't we, this morning to to give our, our favourite 
or best Premier League goals. Um, Tom, where did it rank? I think it's definitely sort of in that kind of top ten. Can I say that? I mean, top I, ten. I mean, that I, many in the Premier League. I mean, I, I think. I mean, <laughs> harsh man. <laughs> <laughs> top ten. I've seen some good goals in my time. I think. Uh, I always think the goals. Yes, you know the technical excellence and 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 what the goal is in itself is, is obviously very important. But I always think that a goal has to has to mean something. You know, the context is important because we we do see incredible goals. You know, in League One, in League Two, in, in you know down the down the park on a Sunday morning. You know, but you have to have something where the stage is is there. Where like Wayne Rooney's goal against right, and, and, or even like Bale's in the Champions League final, for example. Because okay. you know, it's one thing to kind of throw your leg into an air into the air in a, in a in a in a match which is slightly more low key. It's another thing to do it when the whole world is watching. So I think amazing goal technically, but I think there are some other ones where I think the moments were were more important. But I mean, pff, yeah, I mean amazing strike. I mean, I, I always think with those with those goals, the same with Rooney. It's the it's the sort of getting the feet in the right place just before you know, seeing the the, yeah, the flight of the ball. Yeah, he to cover actually to get, to, cover, to, to get into, into the, the position, right position yeah. and then not to get too close to it. You know, to to slow down as well yeah. at the last minute and then yeah. allow you the space to to fling into the air. You know. Um, so yeah, brilliant, brilliant. But ball. but you've not answered because we have been given this task, haven't we, for the for the website today to pick our our best goal in the Premier League. So what what have you picked? I always I I put picked Dennis Bergkamp against Newcastle because I just think that all all the most of these won the goals all have replicas. You know Rooney and Garnacho, Di Canio and Van Persie, even Beckham. We've seen I don't know Suarez and um, Figueroa for Wigan and uh, Xabi Alonso all score from the halfway line eventually, mm. but no one has ever matched what Bergkamp did. You know spinning it one way, swiveling the other, and scoring. I just think we've never seen that happen. I mean maybe you have. I've never seen anyone else do it. So just the uniqueness of that goal, I think, still makes it the best. Alison. Charlie Adam, come on. <laughs> and you say, oh, everyone can score from the halfway line. He scored from 66 yards, actually. And uh, it's the, the, actually the reason it is, this was in 2015 at Stamford Bridge when he was playing for Stoke. And the reason, if I'm honest, the reason it's I'm calling it the best Premier League goal is, A, I was there, and I think that matters. And also, I had... <laughs> I had genuinely been nudging people in the press box and slightly annoying them by saying, because I'm a big Charlie Adam fan, you see, and I was saying things like, I can tell he's going to do something great today. He's in the mood. I can tell. I'm just tell, just tell by looking at his face. Oh, the way he's strutting around. He's going to do something amazing. <laughs> and then he did do something amazing. I felt blooming smug, didn't I? But um, and, and then people were going, wow, you, you saw that coming? That was weird. <laughs> but it was astonishing. And he said afterwards, so I just saw, and it's Tybalt Courtois who's one of the world's best keepers. It wasn't some silly little cup game where the keeper's a bit short and off his line. This is one of the world's best keepers, was just slightly off his line. I noticed he didn't do that before, and so Charlie Adam thought, next time I'm going to have a go. And he had a go from 66 yards out, which is phenomenal. And it was beautiful, and his left peg is a gorgeous thing. And the, the way it... I mean, that's such a long way away that the ball's in the air for a long time, so you're sort of going... <gasps> It's like it's like a cartoon. It's like it's not real. It was absolutely stunning. But I, I do admit I had soft spot for Charlie Adam, which informs that choice. And I was there, so maybe it wouldn't have been that. But to be, I felt really privileged to have seen it and felt that it was, you know, in the air that it was going to happen. Go on, Tony. Um, well, I, I understand all the, you know, the the idea of the importance of the game. Because I would have probably, if I do that, would have probably gone Omri against Man United when he left Barthez, who he was in the, the French team with, literally flat-footed, and it's, he's literally picking it out of the top spot, you know. But if I'm going for a goal, it's only because I'm a, in the centre-forward uh, union here, is that Peter Crouch shouldn't be scoring the goal he got for Stoke. He cannot <laughs> score that goal. I mean, you know, he's six foot what? Five, six? I don't know. What is he, six foot six, Peter? Mm. I mean, ridiculous for him to do what that get that type of goal where he's literally at an angle, as it's dropping, he just hits it, and it is literally postage stamp. And I, I've always said that that goal from a big centre forward, because I don't know how many big centre forwards could get there any, because I certainly couldn't get even close to that. Again, going back to my training days, I wouldn't have done that in training as well. Um, Peter Crouch's goal because I still to this day think it's one of the greatest strikes I've ever seen. So and Stoke, Eden, Stoke, Stoke seem to be winning. winning well, I'm sorry actually because the cause wonder my, goals of the year. My, my vote would, was Bergkamp because I was there completely by chance, and it's yeah. I kind of agree with Tom. It's about was it a bad touch though? 
but it's like there's a lot of these goals are like shocking they're like jarring like this was yeah. one of those where like an overhead kick it's like pow whereas this was like Subtle. wow it was like it almost took it almost took like a several seconds for it to register what he had done mm. it was like it's that slow motion he just <laughs> he just done that so it was just you know a divide belief really yeah. so I would I would go with Bergkamp's too but let's look De Canio's is great as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah volley. I mean, the, the length of the ball that it went to get to him. Yeah, and Because yeah. Van Persie's was with his left foot, right? But De Canio was actually coming from it from the wrong angle almost with his right, from what I remember. Yeah. yeah pinging it into the far, yeah. far place yeah. was, a, yeah. was a great goal as well. This will certainly be talked about for, for many, many years. United, Tony, this is their fifth victory in the past six league, league games. That that mm. blew my mind. Um, and they're only six points behind the leader, leader's Arsenal. Um, obviously head to Istanbul this week uh, for a hugely important game in the Champions League what 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 are we learning about United there was a great performance by Kobe Mino an 18 year old yeah. midfielder who stole yeah, the show really it. yeah Harry Maguire as well I thought centre half handled Calvert Lewin very well but it was an odd performance it wasn't a th- as you're saying it wasn't a 3-0 no it was never like a 3-0 kind of win performance them. and United fans I know that they listen to this they might think we're a little bit biased and but then you know there's not much you can compare with United teams from the past and with when they had successful sides. What I did think is that everything that happened in the game for them happened seemingly. You could argue well, any time's a perfect time, but it just said every time Everton sort of got going, United got another goal. Yeah. Um, I thought the penalty was quite harsh, even in commentary when Gary Neville was describing it. I thought, these these type of penalties are given so easily now, where. You know, Martial's touch got away from him. You know, that that was he was never but he's looked for the line of the of Ashley Young, gone over. But they it's really hard to criticise teams when they go to a Goodison Park and say, you know, they've won three nil and then afterwards go, Yeah, but they're not good. They're but they're not. They're just not Marcus Rashford for a period of the game was Everton's best player. He kept giving the ball to Everton players. And you know, and Marcus isn't like he was last season uh, quite clearly and his confidence has been affected. I thought if you're going to take anything from the game, uh, I I did think they defended really well. Luke Shaw coming back into that team on the left-hand side was a big plus for them because he was a bit more of a safety net. Um tough because I it was just was never a 3-0 three, three for me. Alison, final point on Everton. The only team to have four points or fewer after 12 games, so that's before this game, to avoid relegation was Everton in 1994-95. Do we think, you know, now that we're going to go on to talk about Luton's kind of lift-off at, at Kenilworth Road after the, after the break. You know, it's suddenly, you know, everyone thought, everyone will be fine, but now the five-point five gap have opened up. Bournemouth have turned, turned into, turned up, you know, found a bit of form. Luton have shown that they've got spirit and they'll take them all away. It's it's not going to be cut and dry for them, is it? No, absolutely not. And they'll, I think Dyche and his team are going to have to sit back and think again how to navigate this because it's difficult because they could yet get some of those points back. Uh, right now, as we sit here, that there is an overwhelming sense. I mean, it, it, when the news broke about the 10-point deduction... The mood music was, well, if you break the rules, bad things happen. But now it's changed, and I think most pundits and people involved in the game are thinking, that's too harsh a punishment. And you can't apply punishments when you haven't set out initially what they were going to be. I mean, Everton had no idea that what they were doing would lead to a 10-point deduction. It's really, really... In football, if you're refereeing a game, a player does something that warrants a yellow card. But then, before you had a chance to mention it to him or do anything about it, he then commits another foul, which is also a yellow card. You are not allowed to give him two yellows because the player has the right to know that he's on a yellow before he commits the second offence. And this should be applied in this instance. You, Everton thought they were... They, were try, they knew they'd done something... Things weren't going well. They were trying to with the Premier League, find a route out of the imbalance in their accounts. They had no idea while they were doing all that that by, by the end of it, there would be a 10-point deduction. That one, that they probably most thought, probably thought they were going to get fined. And then they thought, maybe we'll get a couple of points. You can't... Most people now think it's an injustice. So there is a possibility that the 10 points will not be 10 points. But as the 
from a footballing point of view as the coach how do you how, do you, you do you have to tell the players at every co- every session and before every match let's assume we are where we are in the table let's not get sidetracked by um rumors that the that the 10 points won't stick and then you have to that sounds quite depressing though doesn't it let's let's say it's going to, it's going to be 10 points it's going to be 10 points how do you turn that into um the extra motivation to play better to defend better to score more goals how do you turn it into that well their first opportunity as we've said they played okay they played okay but they didn't quite translate that indignation into fury as you put it Gregor on the pitch so they're gonna have to find a way it's and I think and I think that dilemma all that mixed up together is probably what might be strangely what undoes them if they don't find success with their appeal because it's really hard to know what to do with all the information what do you do with it also at what point does the sort of indignation have a tipping point and then it become, becomes deflation you know I think we, we we sort of everyone was talking this week I think everyone was expecting Everton to win this game yeah. because everyone was yeah, thinking yeah. there's going to be this galvanising effect there's this fury there'll be the fans you know we're going to see Everton come storming back but what if it doesn't happen you know what if they have a run now of two or three games where they, where they yeah. lose all three and then they suddenly think you know and all that kind of fury actually just becomes a bit of disappointment feeling the victims feeling like oh everyone's against us you know and I think that's going to be hard for Dice to manage because we all assume that there would be a kind of a kick in and a, and a, and a bounce back. But if it doesn't happen, then it could, could quite quickly feel like a, a real sense of disappointment around the whole club and that would be difficult for him to, to bring back. Well, it certainly made things interesting at the uh, the bottom of the table and that's where our, our attention will turn to next. Still loads more to come. If you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you're subscribed. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game for the latest subscription offer. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gregor Robertson. We're, we've just had to bid farewell to Tom Alnett. Um, Alison Rod, Tony Cascarino are with me. Um, next up, Kenilworth Road. Lift off for Luton Town, Tony. Mm. Um, make, make, making things really interesting at the bottom of the table now, actually, because, as we said, there was this sort of expectation that the three promoted teams were done for. Mm. Um, then Everton Luton were slapped with a 10-point uh, deduction. Luton and Bournemouth as well, who were kind of the team who everyone expected possibly to, to flirt with relegation as well, have both found some form recently. Um, and this was a really, really important moment for Luton Town season. Yeah, and it sort of started with the Liverpool game, didn't it, when they yeah. got a draw at home and lost in the last few moments. Um, well, I, t- I said this at the start of the season, what will be Luton's, obviously, season, what's their biggest chance of staying up? Because it's a massive challenge for Luton. to to stay in the Premier League they are clearly not a club that can go and spend millions upon millions um, and have a structure in place to be competitive as a side they're just a well-drilled team a tight-knit group that are going to give their all in every game so that will give them a chance and they will upset and give a few, few teams bloody noses as Crystal Palace found out at the weekend that's what Luton are capable of you know, and I'm not taking anything away from them, but, but they are built on a side that is really from players who have been down the lower divisions, who have come through, you know. And, and I feel that that in itself, 
I, my first season in the top flight was with Millwall and we got promoted and we all had a point to prove. And we were terrific in that first season when we got into the top flight Division 1 at the time. I remember thinking, we have to have that the next season. If we lose that, we're relegated. We lost it, we got relegated. And and this is how I see Luton. They can't lose hunger, desire, motivation, everything that you'll need to get them extra points. And this is the perfect example of the game and the way they won it, the manner they won it. Um, fair play to Rob Ed- Edwards and his team. The, the, the reason I think there's a chance, I don't think it's a huge chance, but I think there's a chance that Luton will stay up, is that they play for the full 1995 101 minutes. They're not... They'd, if things go against them, they're really level-headed. So they can concede, but they don't act. They don't. You don't see that sort of shoulder drooping. You don't see uh, concentration dipping. Well, there's never been a capitulation. This, no, they, but not even a subtle. A, not goal. even a subtle one. No. Mm. And, and and so if you compare Luton with the other teams that are considered vulnerable, they, you know, they, you know, Sheffield United, they do look crushed occasionally. And they, they suddenly implode as well. They're capable of doing that. And I just feel Burnley, you know, they are infuriating because they can play football at Burnley, right? They've got a good coach. They can play football, but they haven't quite yet mastered the art of it's a game that lasts as long as it lasts and things will happen that you're not expecting and you have to be level throughout. You have to have the, the same level of desire, belief in your system, just belief it's I think that's down totally to Rob Edwards actually from what from what I've gathered from info from the training ground and so on he's just very good at making sure they know who they are they're they're very calm if they were to go down I think they'd probably be the most calm and grown-up relegated team I've seen Mm. they're really I mean they are they're really they're, they're small lack of lack of resources as Tony's pointed out They've, they've got all the excuses to hand for going down. And, and when they came up, most of the fans were saying, we're going to enjoy it. We don't really expect mm-hmm. it to work because of how small we are. But they do have this aura, seems an odd word for a team that are near the bottom. But they have, they have, they do have a calm and a sense that all things are possible. And that draw that they did get against Liverpool, they can always keep drawing on that. Mm-hmm. Always keep drawing on that. We, we, we matched Liverpool. We matched Liverpool. So no matter what happens from now on, they can always draw upon that. And yeah. I, I think I think there is a there is a reasonable chance if they can maintain. And I see no reason why they shouldn't maintain that attitude. Actually, why no, would there they was stop? A, there was a lot of late goals at the weekend. You know the Fergie time sort of thing that only happens to the teams at the top end of the table. They're going to have to avoid that. You know, as a team that's fighting relegation, you can be as Alison said being that 90-minute or 95-minute team that just keep going, that you're not the team that concedes then, like Burnley did against West Ham. Two late goals. Yeah. No, in a great position, two late goals. I mean, in fairness, did you see Jeff- Jefferson Lerma struck the bar with a header in like this last-minute of injury time? It could have been very different. Yes. The goalkeeper had a great, another great save, uh, great performance. So they kind of rode the luck towards the end. But you're right, they kind of were seeing a bit more. They're growing into the a sense of belief that they can... They, they can do something yeah. this season I think so what about Crystal Palace I mean content, another contender for goal of the season by Michael Olise huge yeah. mm. huge to have him back in the team but lost Eze and Ducuri to injury 15th won one of the past six games could they Alison could they get drawn in I, don't, I mean I just think there are, there are teams worse than Crystal Palace Managed by managers not as good as Roy Hodgson, but that that is a massive blow to Corey's serious injury. That's the heartbeat of their midfield gone, mm. and I think all the focus for a long time with Crystal Palace has been on their attacking players. So when they had Eze and Alisi out, it was all about chug 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 until you get them back. But they were doing okay with them out actually. Uh, you know, they had a way through. But the the key to Palace is always the defence and the midfield, and Decore will be a, a massive blow. I don't think the Eze injury is as serious as Decore, so hopefully he won't be out for too long. But uh, no, that that yeah, it'll be a blow. 
and they'll probably flirt with people saying, oh, look how close they are to the drop zone. But there'll be too 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 much now, too much experience, um, mm. too much defensive now as well from Hodgson for them to go down. But I I actually thought there were points in this game where they, they did, Palace did play really well. They did play really well. And it was just injuries at the wrong time in the game. And as you say, hitting the woodwork as well. They were unlucky. But... I don't know, Tony. Do you think they well, could possibly go down? Uh, no, I, I so. don't. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't see that. Look, the, the guy who's the manager was brought in last March to stop them going down, and that's exactly what he achieved. Um, I always feel there's a negative running through this football club. It's all about Roy for the year and what we're doing, and we need to move forward. You, I mean, I'm surrounded by Crystal Palace fans where I live, and and it's always yeah, but. You know, Roy as a manager, um, you know, we have to think further down the line and. You know, and, and I, I always feel Roy's battling against that as much as how his team's doing. It, you know, there's always that agenda of, well, we should move on. And, and it was good under Patrick for a certain amount of time, Patrick Vieira. And, and then when it did go wrong, we, yes, we had to bring him back to keep us. But they're, they're thinking again this season, yeah, but we've got to get a manager for next season. You know, so it's, it's always feels like Roy's battling against that for me. Um, look, the, the winning goal was bit of a harsh one because one of their best players is Anderson and he gets caught with his goalkeeper mm. indecisive a little bit, bit of a, uh, yeah from across um, it you know when you've been there Gregor when your goalkeeper you think it's your keepers yeah. you think it's his right to come and get it he doesn't the end then he gets a little bit flat-footed because he thinks his keeper should probably be there um, and that's cost them uh, in the game and um, with getting Lisse back is a big plus because he like we can see for his the goal we can get he can do that he's that he's I mean, always juggle between seeing Eze and Elise, who's the most gifted. And I actually think Elise is the most gifted, but I don't know if he'll reach the numbers of... Um, sorry, Elise is the most gifted, but I don't know if he'll reach the numbers of Eze by the end of the season. Um, it's, a, it's a game that I'm sure it will really great with Roy because they survived by getting results against teams that were around them last year. Um, and they did that very, very well. So this one would have, I think, would have been quite painful for him. And yet, Luton did get a draw with Liverpool. It's not, yeah. it's not that embarrassing. Yeah. To lose in an unfortunate you, manner I, with injuries. Do you agree, though, Al, with the the narrative around Roy and always, you know, the sh- the short term and long term view of Palace fans and. Because it feels like he's battling against that and he doesn't want to battle. He just wants to be, I'm the coach, I want to be judged an hour I've done, I'm 76 years old, but that shouldn't really matter either. Well, I'm surprised that they are still banging on that door, actually, because I, this, I, in this stint, with the flair players he's got and some really good defenders, I'm a big fan of Anderson, for example, yeah. he's, he's excellent. They they do play attractive football. It's not It's not all dour stuff. There is quite. Mm. I mean, you know, we, we thought we'd seen goal of the season, but then, then we then we saw Ganacho's goal, so it wasn't. But and we'd have been talking about that goal more, mm. actually, wouldn't we? Yeah. But they, I've seen a bit of Palace. I've been entertained each time. I don't. I don't. I think people, people get a label, and the label is that Roy is pragmatic and built on defence, and therefore you're not going to see good football. But you do see good football. Because yeah. he, well, um, he also likes and wants to encourage the young flair players in the team. He was delighted but, to come back and okay. have those players in his squad. I don't. If I was a Crystal Palace fan, obviously, obviously very annoyed that we've lost at Luton Town, given them their first win in the Premier League. That's a bit humiliating. But overall, you get a lot of entertainment with Palace. Mm. It's not. It's not. They're not going backwards. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm. Look, I'm just surrounded by people who watch every game, and they would beg to differ slightly but I'm, I am with you I don't I don't look at a Palace side that I think oh no these are these are dreadful to watch I don't think that at all I actually think there are moments of brilliance within their team and they defend very well you know uh, at times two centre-halves full-backs they're, they're, they're a, I think Roy's created a much better team that, than he took over um, from Patrick Vieira last season well one uh, manager who, who was thinking that he watched something pretty dreadful was Mauricio Pochettino, um, <laughs> whose team, whose Chelsea team lost 4-1 uh, against Newcastle United at St James's Park. Alison, this was uh, an eye-catching result, but also um, a bit of a chastening one for Thiago Silva, who, um, you know, Tony, you've written about this, so I'll speak mm. to 
towards the 21st, you've written about this in your column, a couple of players who may be beginning to show that they're on the wane, um, mm. you know, because of their age, actually. Well, I, I tried to... I didn't want it to sound like this is a knee-jerk reaction to a performance, because anyone can play badly in any game. Um, but there has been signs of, obviously, Thiago Silva this year. He's incredibly gifted, but he's 39 years old. And it, there was times in the game against Newtown where he gets caught, and he get caught. He got caught by Anthony Gordon, obviously. Um, Joe Linton as well. Yeah, Joe Linton as well yeah. in the game. So he he was caught a couple of times. Tiago, I mean, it's a great example of look. If he can't play out from the back, don't ask goalkeepers because Tiago Silva is as gifted as they come. And I've always been a massive fan of his. But I just felt, and and you've been in the game. We, we've all been there and played where some people's legs go at different times he's got to 39 with really his legs not going but there is a split second decision there and I mentioned Ashley Young in that as well where mistakes happen because you are coming into literally the final furlong of your career um, and I thought it showed he looked like a 39 year old on Saturday you know he's played back to back games with eight goals conceded as being the main centre half in them two games against City and you know and again there was mis- mistakes in the Chelsea Man City game and and that I don't associate that's two pretty indifferent games from Thiago Silva back to back um you know conceded eight I'm I'm not sure if it's you you've got to look for a different direction certainly by the end of the season that will happen and why not being 39 years old um I just thought there were signs of it in the game also but Poch was pretty pretty scathing of his players after this. Uh, Martin Hardy's written about it in the game today about he's kind of you know uh, juxtaposing Eddie Howe's positivity and and speak, speaking up his players' character um, when he initially took over about the same point. I think they're thirteen games into uh, into into Poch's season, and this is kind of seemed to be a huge step backwards. And he really was calling his players out and saying this is not good enough. And he was talking about character actually. Yeah, well I mean this is I think this is um a pretty significant moment for Pochettino. He had Pochettino has had a lot of problems with expensive players being injured and promising players being injured. He's 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 had to juggle and even even, you know, St James's Park he didn't have what he would consider his first choice team but Eddie Howe had 10-11 players out He's he'd had that many out in the game against Bournemouth and they'd been disjointed but they had shown a lot of character and he'd worked found a way through within within just one the space of one match he'd found a way Eddie Howe to make a team shorn of a lot of its best players having to move pieces around to make sure that that self-belief, character, personality, effort, cohesion, you can get it even when you've got problems. And that, that, that he's done that in the space of a few weeks, whereas Pochettino has struggled all season to make a team out of similar problems to the one that Newcastle is, has had and so he ha- he sat in the stands Pochettino because he's suspended and he's watching this unfold and he probably can't believe his eyes that Newcastle have won a game they really shouldn't have won given the problems they had and given the performance they'd had just before the international break they should have been ripe for really tearing into you know you've got you've got someone making their second Premier League start in midfield it's looking a little bit mm. Not he was terrific, by the way, Lewis Smiley. He was terrific. Well, then why can't why can't the people who step mm. up for Chelsea to have the same impact? That's what Pochettino's seeing unfold in front mm. of him. It's, it's the it's the comparison, really, that he can't get them to be cohesive and give everything in the right way. And and what made it even worse was he saw someone trying to give everything, but in the wrong way, in the form of Reese James, mm. who's the captain, and probably thought he had to show that he cared. This often happens mm. when it goes wrong. You end up getting sent off because you're not doing it in the right way at all. It comes across as petulant as opposed to passionate. So I'm not I'm not at all surprised Pochettino lost his rag because it was just it's just the comparison was just so stark. Two teams with injury issues and one team showed that it doesn't matter what what problems you have. If you can get eleven players out on the pitch they should be proud to wear the shirt. 
They should know what the system is. They should have a sense of identity. They should want to work incredibly hard. And Chelsea, whilst there were individual performances, like Raheem Sterling looked good, I thought, mm. um, individual performances were okay, they didn't have that sense of cohesion. And what it and it's reminded us that whilst we were all, you know, gushing and gurgling over the 4-4 between Chelsea and Man City... Chaotic. Chelsea were at home and they did concede four goals. Yep. So mm. you know, there's, there is that he hasn't he hasn't really passed. The team haven't passed a test for Pochettino yet. Yeah. And if he thought they had, this proved that they haven't. It was interesting, Rhys James's performance because he clearly was unhappy with Anthony Gordon, who seemed absolutely up for the game, and you end up getting frustrated, you know, as a full back and or wing back and. That stood out for me, That the moments in the game where Anthony Gordon was just like, um, you might not be fit enough to be in this game today. Do you know? Because when you come back from injury, you know, you, you get through the training sessions, you get there, and then suddenly you're a little bit off it. And he sensed it. Anthony Gordon sensed it from the very off. He doesn't give you a moment's peace. No. And, no, and he's quick and he's direct. And, he, and he, like you said, he, he just won't let you sit yeah. on the ball and be comfortable. And I think Rhys James realised quite quickly this was going to be a tricky afternoon. And maybe, you know, in hindsight, you could probably say to Poch, well, should you have put Rhys James in? I know he played in the game against Man City um, and played, I think, 70-odd minutes in that particular game. But he did look like a player that had been injured, come back. Um, you know, he left the England squad just recently, didn't he? Didn't go, didn't go on international duty. You know, Rhys is fighting for his right back spot, if you like. Well, result left Chelsea in 10th on 16 points, 7 points behind Newcastle who are in 7th. Um, and the battle at the top of the table between 1st and 2nd probably says it all that we're coming to this game last. <laughs> it was a bit <laughs> underwhelming, wasn't it? After we talked up so much, it was it was 1st versus 2nd. Not anymore, of course, because Arsenal have, have uh, leapfrogged both Manchester City and Liverpool. But we'll go to the Etihad first. What, what do we think? It was underwhelming. The, the big news was Haaland... Hitting 50, his yeah. 50th goal in, in 48 games, which I think is a joint record um, in the top flight. Um, Trent Alexander-Arnold looking like he's growing into that kind of inverted full-back midfield role, getting the getting the equalising goal. That's probably the two, two standout points, yeah. but it was a bit of a cat-and-mouse game, wasn't it? OK, well, I'll I tell you what I found really interesting, and I mentioned this about Trent, is that, you know, he clearly gets targeted where he plays because Doku and Bernardo Silva were literally put on that left side and Mo Salah isn't asked to, to double up and help him you know and because Klopp wants to play that if they get the ball they get it to Salah really as quickly as they can and yet Trent really had a two against one and look he's going to get sometimes people are going to skip past him because He's quick, but he's not as quick as Doku, and he's not as quick as some other wingers. Of his, I mean, remember Vinicius Junior skipping past him a good few times. You know, he's gonna. He's not got that Carl Walker sudden burst of speed and strength that can handle it. But staying in the game, and and Trent is such a gifted footballer that he'll still produce crosses. He'll still have an impact in the game and still deliver something. And that's what I thought was really intriguing about the game, that, that how Trent gets targeted, because Napoli did it. When they, Liverpool got beat 4-1 last year, they they went in the, in the Champions League game. That area of the pitch, they were funneling down that side the whole time and Liverpool got ripped apart. But Klopp stayed there. He, I said about being compromised, who won't be compromised. And eventually it paid off for Liverpool. And I do think it says a lot because Trent's been around now a long time. He's 25. I have to remind myself that now Trent is a 25-year-old. And he's gone for a lot as a wing-back, come full-back. Can he play other positions? I think he's a massive talent that somehow, like Saturday, there ain't many people who can deliver that moment to get a 1-1 draw at the Etihad and take a ball. We talked about great goals earlier. Trent's first touch, first touch is beautiful, uh, and then to hit it with his right foot. There's very few footballers who can do that. You know, instant touch, strike straight away, bottom corner, Edison, world-class goalkeeper. Yeah, and, and just one final point. The game was there for City to literally win 2 or 3 nil. They didn't take their chances. Liverpool kept in it and got a reward by a moment of brilliance. Do you think that makes Liverpool more content with the with the result, Alison? Of the oh, two teams? completely. I mean, I think never in my life, ever, have I said, oh, I'll take the draw. Took the draw. Because we'll beat them at the um, Anfield, and that means we've 
We've won the title. That's how I see it. Better trolling to uh, finish the. But it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it wasn't a. It was a game that lacked umph, and the pitch was slow, so they all looked like they were running in treacle. Do you buy I, into I, I, the I do 12... think I do think both managers were happy with the draw as well. Do, do, you, do you buy into that? I I was astounded the Premier League wanted to go with twelve thirty for two teams that have been on international duty, got players all over the world playing playing their football, and come back and then go. You're the early game. I thought it should have been the Sunday game for of course me. It should, yeah. you know, without a doubt, it should be the Sunday game. Finally, Arsenal, just because they how can Arsenal because, how, just because, because. Ars, because Arsenal have somehow gone to the top of the league and seem to be going under the radar a little bit. James Gearbrandt's written about this in the game today. The title is Arsenal building this t- this title bit out of scrap and metal. Um, <laughs> he's pointing that last season the, the average Arsenal game featured 3.45 goals, which was the second most in the league. Um, and that 12 of the 38 games, so nearly a third, had more than five goals. And this season they're yielding 2.85 goals. So it's mm. like, although for a team that's accused of being emotional or over-emotional sometimes, uh, it doesn't really fit the narrative. There's more control this year. The most, honestly, when when they go to uh, the managers after a game, I mean, unless the manager just kicks off because they're, they're called Roberto De Zerbi, uh, it's usually quite boring, but it was the most interesting Mikel Arteta has ever been post-match for me because the interviewer, I think this was BBC, yeah. the interviewer said, um, you know, uh, you, a bit like you just described, really. You, you, you sort of, you weren't yourselves, but, you know, it's good to win, isn't it, when you're not playing your best yeah. football? And Arteta says, you don't play good football here. And that that mm-hmm. that was so illustrative of how they have grown up under Arteta because, of course, they went to Brentford, lost and under the Friday night lights and then mm. lost the next two games and his tenure that was Brentford's first game in the Premier League and his tenure was in doubt you know how embarrassing Brentford's first game in the Premier League and they 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 completely wiped the floor with you and he's learned that you do go to certain grounds and you don't try and play attractive football you stick in there you keep organized you keep your shape you you know you work out what you're going to be facing and Brentford do it very well and I think most neutrals would have thought oh Brent- Brentford were a bit unlucky actually there was that mix up at the back and you thought why on earth did mm. you know when Ramsdale lost the ball you thought that, mm. that I mean Brentford really should have scored but it's cleared off the line and in that sense Brentford were unlucky but it, we know what Brentford are and there is almost no narrative mm. about them now because they're, they're, they're so consistent the narrative is about how Arsenal have grown up in the, in that period since they were beaten by Brentford in that they learnt that they're not that Arteta's not afraid to be boring. Mm. He's not afraid to say one nil to the Arsenal is absolutely fine. Boring, is, boring Arsenal. Isn't it interesting that Arteta I mean I think this is one of the reasons to bring in Declan Rice in this type of game of, you know, making it really difficult in midfield areas and but then you had Anfield last week, and you, or the week before uh, international duty, and Jurgen Klopp spoke about Brentford and talked about mm. that's what sort of team I wanted, someone everybody hated to play. They done the double over Man City last year. You know that is an incredible achievement. It's one of the best achievements you'll have from any club to do a double over a team like them who ended up winning the treble. Um, and and that is the problem that Brentford will give give you. Brentford weren't at their best. You know they were off it a bit. Because Arsenal wouldn't let them be at their best. You know, there there was a massive difference from the start of the last season that like Alisson the game's referring to, when it's a 3-0 game, where you just ask for trouble. If you get it wrong against Brentford, you're going to be in, in, in serious trouble because they will dominate in their way of playing. So you have to, in some way, even though you're a grander club and riches of big transfers and high-wage players and all this, in some way you have to say, today you're... You got to play like you're a, a FA Cup team from the League Two up against Brentford to try and stop them, but you can beat them by doing that. Um, and that's how they got over the line. They got over in a game that all Arsenal game fans will forget. Yeah. Because it wasn't a classic. But it didn't show you any. If you had said afterwards this team could be fighting and winning to the title, Arsenal, and point at them, they'd be saying no chance. You know, it felt like a, a a a team in the bottom half of the table match between two of them. 
But that was the way that Arteta felt they had to go, I'm sure. 1-0 to the Arsenal, becoming a f- familiar scoreline again. And I think mm. if it takes Arsenal to the title, they will not care. Anyway, thank you. That's all time. That's all I've got time for today. Alison Rudd, Tony Cascarino and Tom Olnett, thank you for joining me. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you're subscribed, leave us a review, and we'll be back on Thursday. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.